This morning, we are uh, beginning this little three-week Advent series, and it's, uh, it's based on um, the, the Greek word for fish. And, and I don't know if you can put that up. Um, you can see, historically, the fish symbol, um, and it, this goes way back to the early centuries. We're not exactly sure how far back, if it was already during the days of Jesus or not, we're not sure. But, but within the early centuries of, of the church, um, the fish symbol, without the Greek letters in between, became a, um, an important Christian symbol. It just became a, a symbol of Christianity and uh, for those who belong to, to Christ. And it continues to be so to this day, um, which is interesting. They, they would use, um, um, uh, tradition has it, that they would use the symbol to mark locations for gathering. And um, this was especially important during times of Roman persecution, that they would need to somehow kind of keep it secret. And they were able to do this because the fish symbol at first was not just a Christian symbol. It was actually, it, it was used in other kind of pagan uh, religions as well. So the Christians kind of co-opted the symbol, and, and for good reason, because it went right to the heart of one of the um, instructions uh, that Jesus declared to his disciples when he says, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And that idea of being a fisherman, you know, and, and the way Jesus used fish, he multiplied fish to, to feed the 5,000 with, you know, five loaves and two fish um, and so forth. The fish symbol became, you know, a symbol that was attached to Christian faith. I'm also told, and I don't, I, this may be just tradition, it's not clear, but, but it, during times of persecution, in order to, you know, sort of discover if, if another person were a Christian believer, um, tradition has it that one person would take a stick and just mark in the, in the ground, in the, in the sand, you know, just one half of the fish. It just looks like a little part of a semicircle. And if the other person were a Christian believer, they would complete the fish and thereby identify themselves as being a follower of Christ. So the fish symbol um, became important. And the name for the fish is, and that's what the Greek um, symbol is, uh, is ichthus. So this is just the Greek name um, for a fish. But what the early believers did is they took the name ichthus and they used each of the Greek letters. And there were five Greek letters. It translates into six English letters. But the five Greek letters, um, they created an acronym. Um, the I, uh, which in Greek is an iota, uh, was the first name for Jesus. Jesus is Jesus. Uh, the C, um, and, and when I was taught it was Chi. I've heard more recently they call it key now, but Chi or Chi, um, that's the, the Greek letter. And the Greek letter, and that's why I put the X, is actually an X. And this will also help you a little bit. I, I know that sometimes it, it was fashionable to say, you know, Mary Xmas. And then there was this kind of rush to like say, oh, you know, we're, we're removing Christ from Christmas. Well, in actuality, this was just a shorthand way that goes back centuries for um, talking about Christ. They would just use the first letter, which in Greek is an X. And so that became quite standard as a, a way to print um, Christ. And, and it wasn't meant to be like this nefarious uh, scheme to remove Christ from Christmas. Um, it's just the, the first letter. So the C or the X is the chi for, for Christos, uh, Christos uh, which is Christ. And then it will continue. Um, the theta, the TH is representative of just one Greek letter, the theta, uh, which stands for theu, which is Greek for God. 
The upsilon, the U in Greek, uh, is uh, the, really the first letter. In English, it gets translated with an H sound, so it's kind of a huios, um, uh, or huios. Uh, that's the, the name Greek for sun. And then the, the sigma, the S, Greek letter S is sigma, that stands for uh, soter, soter, which is uh, the Greek word for savior. So if you put the, the, this acronym together, what you have is um, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. And so what I'm just doing for the next three weeks, I'm just using that as an outline um, to talk about these titles for, for, for Jesus. Jesus, the Christ, that's what we're talking about today. Next time, it'll be um, God's Son, Son of God. And then the third week, the, the Sunday before um, Christmas, will be Savior. Savior. So that's where we're going just over these next um, three weeks. So again, today we're looking at the, the first two letters, Jesus Christ, with a focus on the title of Christ. And so our text uh, for this morning is uh, the great confession of the Apostle Peter concerning the identity of Jesus as the Christ. And um, this is in all, this is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'm just choosing Luke um, because it's a little bit of abbreviated and, and it focuses in on the title Christ. So with that in mind, would you stand for the hearing of the word of God? This is Luke uh, chapter 9, verses 18 through 22. Now it happened, that is he, that is Jesus, was praying alone. The disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others, that one of the prophets of old uh, has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we celebrate the first coming of Jesus We pray that the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, would come now and make your word come to life in our hearts and in our minds. Let us now in the truth of your Holy Scriptures come before you. Lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Part of the way that Luke stresses the importance of this occasion as he tells us that it happened immediately after um, Jesus had been praying alone. This is a little device that often Luke uses um, uh, to, to announce that this, this kind of important event is about to take place. For instance, you know, Jesus spends the entire night praying, and then Luke tells us how he calls the disciples to himself. Um, that prayer is uh, both a, a way to announce, like, this is important, a way to emphasize it, as well as to remind us um, just of the importance of prayer itself, the importance of continuing to Come before the Lord, seeking his strength, seeking his grace, seeking his wisdom. And we have this model that if this, were, if this is true of Jesus, 
as he's facing, you know, um, uh, important um, events in his life, how much more important is it for us to learn to cultivate the habit of prayer within our lives? And after getting alone with his disciples, Jesus is curious as to what is being said concerning him. He wants to know, you know, what are the people saying? What's being, you know, what do you hear on the grapevine? What's the latest rumor being floated around? And so Jesus asks his disciples, who do the people say I am? Who do the masses say that I am? What the disciples say is that the people have several theories. You know, it's not clear um, who he is, at least uh, in view of the masses. Some are saying that Jesus could be John the Baptist. And this may be, you know, this might sound strange to us because Jesus and, and John were contemporaries of each other. However, by this time, as Jesus has moved into his ministry, John has not only been imprisoned um, by Herod, but he has also probably by this time, he's been martyred. And so um, we know like, for instance, King Herod was wondering as he heard about what Jesus was doing. And, and he learned that Jesus's disciples were now baptizing the way John the Baptist was baptizing. Um, it was, a, you know, a, a, a question, is this somehow John the Baptist, you know, resurrected from the dead, uh, now in, this, in the person of this, uh, uh, this prophet, Jesus? And then um, others declare that Jesus is Elijah. Elijah was one of the greatest prophets that Israel had ever known. It was actually a, you know, a very honorable title that the, the, the people are now um, ascribing to Jesus. The prophet Malachi ended his book uh, in the Old Testament prophesying of the coming of Elijah in the future to set up the kingdom of God. And further, Elijah is a good candidate for Jesus because um, as we know at the end of Elijah's life, he doesn't appear to die a, a normal death. He's taken up into this fiery chariot, straight up into the presence of God, um, apparently without having to suffer a natural death. So combined with the prophecies and, and Elijah's being taken to heaven, another good candidate. You know, this is who Jesus is. He, he's, the, he's Elijah come back from heaven. And then still others were, were suggesting other prophets. Um, uh, we know that uh, uh, in Matthew, he describes the possibility of Jesus being the prophet Jeremiah uh, uh, come back from the dead. Clearly, in the early ministry of Jesus, uh, uh, the people, the masses were very impressed with Jesus and his ministry. They had a high regard for him. They were convinced that he was, in fact, a messenger, a, a true spokesman with God who is ministering with power. However, in, with all that said, they still only see Jesus at this stage as a prophet, uh, as just a, a important, a man of God to be sure, but so far, they don't seem to have uh, uh, pursued the possibility with any rigor or any um, real seriousness that he could be something more, something more than uh, the, the, the prophets uh, that had, God had previously sent. And this is where the story becomes more interesting. And Jesus turns to the disciples and he puts the question to them. Okay, I've heard you say, tell me, you know, what the people think. 
Now, this is, re- I, and I, you have to think, this is really what Jesus was interested in. What do you say? You know, who do you say that I am? What, what, you have been watching me now. And apparently Jesus hasn't just, you know, you would think Jesus would just tell him, you know, I'm the man. I, I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm more than just a prophet. But apparently that has not been um, Jesus's plan. Jesus has just allowed them to follow him as a rabbi, uh, as this man of God, allowing them to simply observe his life, his ministry, his miracles, and his teaching. And at this point, they have seen Jesus casting out demons, miraculously healing the sick, even calming the wind and the waves and, and feeding, you know, 5,000 with, as I mentioned before, five loaves and two fish. So, um, so they've seen these events. And so now Jesus is putting the question to them, who do you say that I am? And this is where, if you're watching a, a television program, this is where you cut to a commercial break, right? This is, this is where there's, like, there's no answer. You, you, you pause the narrative in order to build dramatic tension. The problem is that the Apostle Peter never subscribes to dramatic pauses or tension. And so Peter, as is his want, you know, it's kind of, it seems to be part of his temperament and, and character, uh, his personality, he just blurts out um, uh, to them uh, that Jesus is the Christ of God. Um, let's see. Peter puts it this way. He, he just simply says, uh, and Peter answered, um, you are the, the Christ of God. That's, it's very simple here. This is a, a bit of an abbreviated um, statement that we have just a slightly longer version of in, um, in Matthew, and I think Mark as well. But his focus is on this title. And, and here you see um, the use of Christ is preceded by the definite article. It is, he is the Christ. And what we need to understand, because we may lose sight of this because of the way we use the term Christ, we use it almost as if Christ were Jesus' last name. So it's just Jesus Christ. And we just use that as a way of identifying Jesus. Um, and, and that practice is not new. I mean, the Bible, the New Testament itself, regularly just refers not to Jesus the Christ, even though it is you know, um, technically correct that it is a title. It's not actually, it's not, a, it's not a name, it's not his last name. But even the New Testament writers are very comfortable just referring to Jesus, either just as Christ or Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, um, without making it explicit that this is a title, even though the title is what's hanging always in the background. But here, um, uh, the, the title's emphatic. This is, the, the definite article is here, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. You're the unique Christ. You're the Christ of God. Um, And what Peter is saying, and and we need to go back just a little bit, because the word Christ, um, Christos, um, is just literally, it it would be translated anointed one. Okay, Literally, that's what um, a Christos is. It's an anointed one. In the Old Testament, there were three different offices that could be referred to as anointed ones. Um, 
Aaron, the, the first high priest, um, when God is establishing the priesthood, Aaron is to be anointed with oil as a symbol of being anointed by the Spirit to be able to fulfill his role, his office as a priest, and especially as the high priest. And so priests were known to be anointed ones, anointed usually with oil. The same was true, um, Isaiah refers to himself as being anointed um, by God. And so prophets, too, were, were considered anointed ones. Probably most notably, the kings. The prophet Samuel, for instance, comes to both um, Saul, King Saul, and King David. And he anoints them with oil to announce that this is going to be God's selection to fill the office of king within ancient Israel. So in the Old Testament, you have these, you know, these little Christs, uh, little anointed ones. And in Hebrew, it's um, translated often as Messiah. These kind of small case Messiah figures, anointed ones, prophets, priests, and kings. But through, as the course of the the Old Testament continues and the prophets rise up and and beginning really all the way back in Genesis 3.16, where you have this mysterious um, prophecy concerning the seed of the woman who will crush, you know, his uh, heel will be crushed um, by the serpent, but uh, the head of the serpent will be crushed by this mysterious descendant of the woman, of Eve, already announcing that there will become this, this mysterious deliverer who will defeat the serpent, who will bring triumph over the, enem- the great enemy of God's people, Satan. And this mysterious figure continues through the Old Testament of one who will have the scepter of a Messiah that will arise up. We know in Micah that he's going to come from uh, this little town of Bethlehem. And we know from um, Samuel that he's going to be this descendant. He has to be a royal descendant of King David. And he will sit on David's throne. He will sit on that throne, restoring the kingdom, um, and sit on that throne forever. And so over the Old Testament, this mysterious, there's this mysterious figure that arises. And there are kind of two strands of thinking around this figure. On the one hand, he's going to be like David. He's going to bring vindication to God's people. He's going to establish this glorious kingdom. And on the other hand, what Isaiah begins to show us is that this mysterious Messiah will come in the form of a servant. And he will surprisingly suffer. And somehow that suffering will be on behalf of his people. And so there's these two, these two dual strands of thought that begin to uh, rise up within the Old Testament. But what Peter's saying is, it's the Christ. It's this person who the Old Testament has been predicting all the way from Genesis chapter 3 through the uh, the prophet Malachi, this the Messiah, the one of God, who would fulfill these ancient promises, 
who would be a prophet like Moses. You know, this great uh, prophecy in the book of Deuteronomy. He's going to be a high priest, um, in, in this case, like Melchizedek uh, of the Old Testament, this, this kind of king high priest. And he's going to be a king like David. He's going to be a king like Solomon. And he's going to be the definitive deliverer. That's what Peter is declaring here. He doesn't fully understand it, as we'll see. <laughs> But Peter launches well on this one. You know, sometimes he sticks his foot in his mouth. But this time, he gets it right. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, Matthew adds this, um, this piece to uh, Peter's confession. Um, there we read that Jesus answered Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar-Jonah. It's just the way, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus does not rebuke. He does not correct Peter for identifying him as the Christ sent from God. Okay, This, this fulfillment of, of, of promises. In fact, he praises Peter. He tells Peter that he is blessed because this knowledge... And this belief has been given to him in some kind of supernatural way. This illumination has been given to him as a gift from God. And the New Testament proclaims that Jesus is the Christ of God. He is the Messiah who has come from, is sent by God the Father. Jesus is God's chosen Messiah who is uniquely qualified to deliver his people from their greatest enemies, those being sin, Satan, and ultimately death. And Christmas is the reminder that all of us who have been able to see this figure, the one we call the incarnate one, what do we mean by the incarnate one? the one who has supernaturally, miraculously, God, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, has taken on flesh. Some consider the incarnation as the great miracle of the scriptures, that God would take on, the God of the universe would take on human flesh and identify himself as one of us in order to bring salvation and redemption and ransom and defeat over our enemies and life, that all of this is, in fact, the the incarnation is the great miracle. And we, if you recognize that this is the Christ, just as Jesus would say to Peter, he says to all of you, blessed are you. You've got, you know, you may get a lot of things wrong in life, but if you get this right, if your faith and your trust is in this man, this God-man, for, uh, for your redemption, this is, has eternal consequences. Blessed, blessed are you, is what God says. You have discovered the pearl of great price. You have that which is worth far more than all the treasures and wealth of this world. And so rejoice. <laughs> Take joy, as uh, my brother and elder Cheryl Puckett uh, reminded us earlier this morning. Now, strangely, 
in verse 21, Jesus emphasizes that the truth of his identity is not to be shared with others, at least not yet. I mean, listen, pay attention to the the strong language. I mean, Jesus really is emphatic when he says, verse 21, and he, Jesus, strictly charged and commanded them. You know, that's just like underline, underline, bold, exclamation, exclamation point. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. To tell what to no one? To tell anyone that he is the long-awaited Messiah. Well, how can, you know, Peter's like, are you kidding me? (laughs) You've just revealed the source of life to us. You've given us like this, you've confirmed what we've kind of wondered and suspected. That the promises are coming to pass. And now you want us to be quiet about this? Well, this is surprising, and it's not entirely clear, because the scriptures do not tell us explicitly, why would Jesus say, keep it a secret, at least for now? That's essentially what Jesus is saying here. Well, the reason for this, and and it was even true of the disciples, that even though um, the, the Peter and the apostles are correct about his identity, there's still great misunderstanding around what, who the Messiah will be, what the role of the Messiah will be. And in these days, you know, I talked about those two strands concerning this mysterious coming deliverer. Well, in, in this, this first century, there was heightened messianic expectation. But the strand that was dominant in their view of this coming Messiah the strand that they wanted, they delighted to emphasize, was that this Messiah would be a warrior king. Something like, but even mightier than David. And that this warrior king would lead them into glorious battle. And he would lead them against their hated enemies, the Romans, who had, you know, that were... Uh, uh, in tyranny over them. They, they were governing and ruling the Israelites at this time. Um, and they, they, you know, they, they chafed under Roman rule. And so their vision of the Messiah was, the Messiah is going to take care of business when he comes. The Messiah is going to take it to our enemies. And we're going to have this great victory. And it's going to be glorious. And that kingdom is going to come in power now. Well, that was really the dominant view that the people had of the coming Messiah. And it even appears this was the dominant view of the apostles. And so Peter, I mean, so Jesus continues to help. He immediately begins to inform them of the nature of the Messiah that Peter has just confessed. In verse 22, he says this, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, this would have not computed. (laughs) This is not the Messiah they were looking for. This was not the Messiah they were expecting. And it may not be the Messiah that we're expecting. The suffering servant 
This is the Messiah that God sends into the world now, for the time being. A Messiah who will have the victory, but it will be through the irony. It will be through the surprising weapon of his own shameful suffering and death on a cross. Jesus does not come as a mighty general leading the troops into militaristic political warfare. He comes as a suffering servant. I was just with the uh, teenagers earlier today, and I'm just saying, you know, Christians have traditionally, we are at our best when we follow Christ into service and suffering. We are at our best when we recognize that our, the way we, we, we image Christ as believers is by serving. This is why on the night of the Last Supper, how did Jesus begin the Last Supper? He, t- he takes the towel of a servant and he begins that, taking that lowly posture of a slave, frankly, and washing the feet of his disciples. And the, and the disciples, again, Peter, no, no, Lord, not me, you know. That's, that's wrong. That's not the way Messiah should act. And what Jesus is doing is he's not only showing him, this is the, the path of the Messiah in his first advent. When he comes again, it will be David. It will be putting things to right. And in some cases, it may be violent. But in this first coming, he comes as a servant. And what he's showing Peter and the other apostles um, is this is, this is the role of the, the, of the Messiah in his first coming. And, and this is what I'm calling you to do. I'm calling you to follow me in service, as a servant, taking on your towel, taking the lower position with those around you, willing to, even though you may be rich, giving up your riches to serve those who are poor. Um, and that may be literal or figurative, but, but all that to take, we are at our best when we come to serve. This is what the Messiah did for us all the way to a literal death on a cross, followed by the glorious triumph of the resurrection. But this is true for us as well. First suffering, first death, first the cross, and then the triumph and the glory of new life and resurrection. But we can rejoice. The Messiah has come. Would you pray with me? Lord, may we, like the angels, ponder, delight in the good news of great joy that is for us, news of a Savior, Christ the Lord. And so, Lord, we delight in the the sending of your Son into this dark world. And as he was a suffering, serving Messiah, Lord, may we take up our towels. May we follow him and to make him proud as we endure and and are willing uh, to be broken and to be servants, to suffer on behalf of the world around us. So Lord, fill us with the same spirit that you anointed Jesus with. May the same spirit anoint and fill us. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.